Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Let's start with a very old poem. On the bank of Taishi River is Li Bai's grave, surrounded by wild grass that stretches to clouds. How sad that the bones buried deep in here used to have writings that startled heaven and moved earth. Of course, poets are born unlucky souls, but no one has been as desolate as you. When you think of an ancient poet, what do you picture? Wandering? Drinking? A lot of ups and downs? That certainly describes the life of Li Bai, one of the most brilliant and beloved poets in Chinese history. A man of whom it is said that he drowned jumping into a river, drunkenly chasing the reflection of the moon. In his beautiful new biography, Banished Immortal, the poet and author Ha Jin paints a vivid picture of this extra vivid man who suffered the double misfortune of living in interesting times and of being very interesting himself. Ha Jin is very interesting too. A young soldier in China's Cultural Revolution, he came to America as a grad student. Watching the Tiananmen Square massacre on TV, he decided to stay in America for good. He has won the Penn Faulkner and the National Book Awards for his writing, and I'm very, very happy to have him with me here today. Welcome to Think Again. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Most of your writing until this point has been things that you've invented out of you know, the air or your life, right? Sure. Poetry, yeah. stories, yes. fiction. What made you or what moved you to go into the life of Li Bai at this point? In a way, it, it, is, it was by accident. Okay. In fact, there was an editor at a small press called Shambhala Press. He asked me to write a mini-biography for some well-known Chinese person. Any well-known? Anyone. Oh, okay. Anyone. Okay. It's okay. Like, like a long essay, in fact. It's 12,000 words. Okay. A small, very small book. I see, like a small format. Yeah, yeah like it's a, it's a mini gift, gift book. Or yeah, something. they call it yeah. mini biographies. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I gave him a list of names, and he said, "We, you know, we, I want Li Bai. Why don't you write a, uh. a, a biography uh, of him?" And I agreed. Then I began to do research, and I didn't see a full biography in English. Hmm. So I, I began to wonder, you know, instead of writing a small one, why don't I write a full-length biography? But later I figured out why it was the case, because you would have to use a lot of poems, then whose translation you want to use, and then the, the, the issue for copyright. Oh, that I costs see. so <laughs> much, you know, you can't just say, I write a biography, then you uh, use another person's translation that you can't pay for that. Gotcha. That would be too much. So I think that's the reason we don't. We didn't have a full-length biography. Are these your either. translations? Yes. I so trans you translated all of them. Everything yes, by yes. I mean, so much, I'm sure, is lost in translation. Yes. yes. What What is lost for us now, like me? I actually know more than maybe a lot of Americans mm -hmm. about ancient Chinese history mm -hmm. because yeah. I've, I've read the records of the historian. Oh, and really? I, and, I, and I know about I know about Taoism and I've read Chuangzi and but for us you know the audience like what what are we losing what what can we not I think it's a lot lot is lost in translation especially the poetry because the ancient Chinese poetry is very intricate there are a lot of echoes and resonance that cannot be recaptured in translation 
So in the sounds of the word, the sound, the, the, the cadence. Basically, I just decided to write, this, you know, in plain English, straightforward, sure. like current English. That's the only reason. Otherwise, it was impossible, just impossible to to reproduce uh, the Stru feeling. Structurally, structurally uh, impossible either. I'm always struck by that. I find your translations very accessible, and you also do a really nice job of explaining what's going on in the background and what the the places mean and so on. But we also don't have access to uh, a lot of the geography. Those things, you know. The, yeah, that's like, the hard part. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But what's nice here that you've done is, you know, the poems illustrate the life. We, we mm -hmm. go along the life and the yeah. poems illustrate it, which in fact they do. I mean, yes. this was a man who wrote kind of from where he was, yeah, from what he saw, from yeah. what he was experiencing. Yeah. Basically, I'm a fiction writer. So my wife was very sick <laughs> for a few years ago, very, mm -hmm. very sick. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't inhabit a novel. So I couldn't, because when you write a novel, you would have to live in the book, spending a lot of, a lot of time with your characters. But I couldn't do that. Because focus. Yeah, because Not I, just time, but... I was the only caregiver sure, in the family. So sure, that, sure. that's another reason, for a practical reason, I could take on a project like this. Because intuitively, I knew in, in case of Li Bai, I should follow the poems. Right. Every masterpiece by him would be kind of a small crisis, <laughs> a, a center of drama in his life. So right. I follow the poems as a minor milestone, step by step. I don't have to worry about the structure of the project. Sure. For practical reason, that was doable for me. You know, one thing that seems very important in Chinese poetry generally, and certainly in what I've read here of Li Bai, mm -hmm. is the the land. Sure. Yeah. The land is is huge, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And the self kind of happens mm -hmm. inside the land. You know? Yes. Yeah, that's true because the country was so big. It's what, in fact, it used to be much bigger. <laughs> A good part of Central Asia used to be part of China at that time. Okay, right. And Li Bai is from the far west. Yeah, he far traveled away. many, many yeah, miles in yes. his life. So when we talk about uh, exile, basically that's still in China. It's not like in Europe. Right. <laughs> you right. go to another European uh, country. But in case of China, basically you, you, you couldn't leave China basically still within the boundary. So you get this country. idea of you get you hear a lot about yeah. infinity and you yeah. hear thousands and thousands of miles because that's sure. the it's reality. Still, yeah. Yes, yeah. still his territory. Mm. <laughs> I mean let's talk about this life. This is a crazy life. This Very life crazy, sometimes yeah. seems mm. impossible. Like mm -hmm. I'm reading it and I'm saying, mm. okay Hajin, did you make up some of, you, you know, <laughs> I can't believe what's happening to mm. this man. I mean part of it is the result of history, and part yeah. of it is because of the kind of character that he yes, was. Yes, yes. See, there's, I think, the internal conflict, and uh, I think, for me, that was very precious. There's a sense that he was entitled to many things which he didn't have. In a way, he, he was entitled. You see, when he died again, he was summoned to the, by the emperor to right. become a, a courtier, where he used to be, he used to believe he always belonged to the, the palace. We should but say, he, we <laughs> should say for the listeners, he's born with tremendous talent. Yes. But he's born, and he's born into a, a wealthy family. His father's a merchant. He has yes. a lot of money. Yeah. But at that time, in terms of social status, that 
that Alone. gives you very little access <laughs> yes, to the government yes. and to the pr preferred positions, and you yes, can't yes. even take the civil service exam. Mm -hmm. So there is that that disconnect yes, between yes. what he feels he deserves and yes, what, what he has. Yes. But ultimately, you know, he is a, such a talent; he is not useful. You know, he can find a place in the world. He's just beyond everybody. Right. So that, that kind of oddness in his life, but it's tragic. He has good friends, so many people mm. who love him, so mm. many people who love his poetry, both during his lifetime and yes. after. But if I had to do the math, I mm -hmm. would say that his life was full of suffering. Full of suffering, yes. <laughs> <laughs> see, I think see, that's the problem. I think the beauty in his life, you know, for, for a writer, to try to capture the complexity is that he always has the religious longing. Yeah. That is very precious. And he was aware of that. He's, in fact, in a poem, he said, I try to be divine and prosperous. Right. But I wasted my life by pursuing both. You can only have one, you know, to get the rich at the end. Yeah, there, there, well, there, yeah several <laughs> things pulling him in different directions, right? Yes. He wants to be he wants to be a glorious warrior. Yes. He associates the family name is associated with a a kind of like northern or was western frontier yes. general, General yes. Lee. Yes. And so he has dreams of military glory. Yes. He wants to be important in government. Mm -hmm. He's drunk all the time, <laughs> right? So that's hard too. And then he also dreams of being a Taoist kind of hermit yes. in the mountains. Yes. All things which are yes. incompatible with yes. each other. But the, I think all these different forces created a, a unique tension in his life mm -hmm. that I think helped him produce the great work. Probably it's his level of like energy and restlessness and, mm -hmm. and desire for action that yes. also draws him to the idea of peace, even though he can't so really that's another have part. peace. Yeah, that's another part. He loves peace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the yeah. man uh, was full of contradictions. So, but to somebody who understand, like who can read and really understand these poems in their mm -hmm. original, the talent is kind of like, pouring off the page. Yeah, yes, they're just yes. undeniably brilliant. Absolutely. You just feel that the poetry just came to him like a, a river flows <laughs> mm. uh, from somewhere higher than this place. You do feel that. That's a sense of abundance, excessive energy. And you make the point again and again in the book that other people around him, mm. whenever he showed them the poems, mm. they felt it too. But somehow he always scares them as well. His, yes. He's so weird and unstable. Yes. I, I know. It's too big. Outshine, outshine everywhere. Nobody knows what to do with the guy. I, I, I think he was that kind of talent, too big, can't be used. Something you said about him reminded me of something I read that you apparently once said in an interview that the things that hurt us the most mm -hmm. are the things we go back to again mm -hmm. and again in in the writing or that the, the suffering in a way sure. produces the writing. Would you say that is generally true of your work? I think so. There's always a deep something that begs the trouble in your life. Most of your, your ideas and emotion would come from that source. I also read one of your poems, and I won't remember the name, but I think you were saying something. I, I, it seemed to me that you were talking about American culture and mm -hmm. how there's not much place for s sadness in it. Sure. That there's <laughs> I, like I, a lot of pressure here to I be know, positive sure. or sure. something. Yes. So 
for you in your career, in your writing and mm. being a teacher here and mm. so on, you've been here for how many years? 34. 34. Almost 34. Almost mm. 34. How is it working for you to be writing and thinking out of those places of suffering and sadness within a culture that is still mostly like sure. super positive? <laughs> I know, the... yes. But that's different. Yes, the uniqueness of our American culture, you are supposed to be happy, <laughs> at least in appearance. Yes. Right? You are not supposed to spread misery. Right? right. That's, that's, that's true. That shouldn't be that way because you have to meet and mingle with people. You can't just... The, communicate bad feelings all the time. My wife is Turkish, and when the Turkish people come together, yeah. meeting and mingling, yes. they are also talking about very sad things. They're sure. coming and yes. saying, you yeah. know, how are you? Oh, you know, yeah. my yeah. arm hurts. Yeah. And the, 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 I like. know, yes. <laughs> That's why, in fact, you talk to a European, European say, you know, well, you know, human being, you know, you are human beings. Suffering is part of your life. How can, how can it be otherwise? Right, right. That's right. the normal normal response. So suffering is part of life, as part of humanity. But for me, I think as an American now, and uh, I think I, especially you know I teach you know, all the time. Uh, I have to manage that. Mm. So I, I basically I use my my bad feelings and try to use those creatively. Yeah. Um, you write can but writing and the working. And the labor can keep you sane, right? <laughs> keep you balanced. Ah, right, 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 right. How would you say that your work, your writing, has changed over the years as you've become used to being in this American culture? A lot, a lot. Also myself, you know. Uh, you write, by the way, you've written most of your published works in English, yes, which yeah. is like you pulled the Nabokov trick, you know, he's the only, <laughs> he's the only other one I know, right, who, you know, c comes and then writes mm. as well in the second language. As in you know, I had to survive because I didn't have any degrees in, in other fields other than English, mm. and that's part of it. Also, I think I live in between languages. Mm. But in the beginning, I couldn't, I, you know, I only knew about China. I couldn't write anything about, uh, about anything else. I couldn't, in fact, it was hard. Everything was hard, still hard, still hard. <laughs> hard in a different way, hard in a different way. So you said you have a sense of direction now. What, what is that direction? That means, you know, I, I know where I have to concentrate. Basically, I'm a writer. Mm. I don't need to worry too much about the other things. Mm. So I really spend more time on the paper. And that's eventually that's what counts. Is it okay if we talk a little sure, bit about yeah. China? And, sure, and yeah, you, absolutely. Okay, all right. So, I mean, your story sounds very dramatic and surprising mm -hmm. to an American ear mm -hmm. that you know you were that you were at. 19, you were in the army, right? In, in I was early. I, I left the army at 19. At 19. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I went there. I think uh, I spent five years in the army, but I left at 19. And then you go to school in China for literature at that time, or you came directly to America? For English. Yeah, for English. For, then, I, then I came to the States. And then you came here. So you did like college and graduate school in, in China? I did uh, a master's in China. In China. And I came, uh, I went to Brandeis. For, for a PhD. Coming from America, I have such a specific perspective on mm. Mao and the Cultural sure, Revolution. Yes. What did you believe in then? Like, what, what made you want to be a soldier? For, for, oh, for at the time, at you, there, time. Were, there was a better choice. The alternative, would, the, the other side would be 
to go to the countryside, the work in the fields, the food would be worse. You know, the labor would be harder. Because the revolution was winning, and yes, so you were the, either with the revolution or yes, you were the against colleges it. were closed. So there was, uh, you, I couldn't continue uh, uh, to go to school. I see. So the other choice. So it was a practical choice, practical not, not choice just was better, not ideological. Uh, yeah, it was a better uh, choice to be a soldier. <laughs> but uh, we didn't expect we went to the very front. In fact, we stay at the border between the former Soviet Union and China. Right. So it was tense at the time, very tense. Mm -hmm. There were uh, small clashes between the two countries on the borderline. Okay. So we were there. So you the were fighting. We, we didn't fight. We, we came to the tail end of that. Have you been back to China? No, I'm not allowed. You're not allowed. I'm not allowed. So see, after I left in 1985, I have never been able to go back. Then my parents, both of them, uh, passed away, and afterward, uh, uh, my feelings have changed. I really, I, I, I'm not eager to go back anymore. Oh. When my parents were alive, I was very, very eager. But then they, they both died. Just to see them, but you don't miss the country itself. I miss, but it's a different kind of attachment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> different kind. Sure, different kind. sure. And I, rationally speaking, I would be out of place because I've been there away for 34 years. Let's talk a little bit about drunkenness. Okay, sure, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> because yeah. that's a really, that's a big deal here. It put me in mind of, um, you know, in Sufi poetry, right? Mm, yes. Uh, of uh, the sort of Islamic mystical poetry. Sure, yes. Drunkenness is a big theme there too, and yes, in yes. a similar way. It's similar about way, yes, kind yes. of coming out of yourself into a creative space, sure. into an openness, yes. right? Inspiration, kind of inspiration, yes. Yeah, yes. And, and that's true here in a very real way. They yes. are drinking and then writing. Yes, and uh, in fact, I think still there are some Chinese artists that they would think of alcohol as kind of a <laughs> stimulation or inspiration. Uh. And there is a stage, I think, between the real drunk maybe tipsy state, right. so you are still lucid, so you, you can really relax, you, you are loosened up, right. so you can write creatively. And, and they were drinking, they're drinking wine, like would it be, what, you know, in, in Libai would have been drinking all rice kinds. wine mostly? Mostly or? rice wine, but all kinds, because he's from the West region, so the regular wine, grape wine, food mm. wine, were a big part of it too. But like, as you say in the book, it's also kind of lower alcohol and they're drinking small cups. So maybe you spend a longer period in the tipsy yes, state. That, that, you know, there are different kinds of, different kinds of wine. Sometimes very often because he was not rich, he had a lot of lower quality wine with lower, official, lower ranking officials. Well, I mean, he writes a lot about drinking like 300 cups of wine. Yes. And in that context, we're talking about probably yes. a lower alcohol wine. Yes. So yes. he can spend hours and hours yes. talking and writing. Yes, and like a beer. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, sure, yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Also, he, you know, he boasted a lot. So that's a part of that's his signature. <laughs> Hard to separate the man from yeah. the legend, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's larger than life for real, but he also invents himself. Oh, always. That's why, you know, invented a kind of poetic personality. 
So people accepted that personality for the real person very often. He becomes a Taoist, like yes. ordained or whatever yeah. you would call it. He goes through the ceremony to become yes. an official Taoist. Yes. And that is hardcore. Yes. A week on his knees walking uh -huh. around. Yeah. It was really, he was very devoted, <laughs> very devoted, yeah. serious about it. And also it's like, like nowadays if you become priest, you... You exist in different kind of order. You are somewhat uh, detached from a secular. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> mean, it means something symbolically yes. to other sure. people, right? Yes, and basically he's safe. Materially speaking, he's safe in his life. Yeah. And people can't touch him. He, he's, he belongs to the holy order. <laughs> it's funny. I can very much relate to... I mean, I've, I like... I love Chuangzi. Uh -huh. And yeah. I, I, I love... And I can very much relate to the Taoist ideas of the way and being in accordance with, yes. with yeah. the way. Mm -hmm. The immortality stuff is crazy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the idea. Yeah. So he really, he, he tried, you know, he, he, he tried to, to pursue immortality. Yeah. So, but in Both in poetry, I guess, and in, in, in for action, real. He, yeah. he produced the, the longevity pills, and in fact, that ruined his health. You said something like, I don't know, five emperors were probably killed by yes. poison to death. Uh, yeah, by those in that dynasty alone, five emperors, yes. So these are, for the audience, these are Taoist immortality pills mm -hmm. that include a lot of like metals yeah, and, and other mercury. mercury, for example. <laughs> That's as good a place as any to move on to the second part <laughs> sure. of the show. For the audience, this is where Big Things producers have chosen a couple of surprise video clips on specific ideas from Big Think's past interview archives. I haven't watched them, Hajin has not watched them, and we'll just watch one and take the conversation where it goes. Sure. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So this seems like a serious one. The title of the video is Student Loan Debt and American Horror Story, and the speaker is Michael Hobbs. A couple of reasons why college has gotten so expensive. First of all is states are cutting higher education funding. Second thing is supply and demand. What we have is a crisis where to get onto the job ladder, the few decent jobs left that have health care, that have security, that have a pension, they all require a college degree. So you have to go to college, basically. And yet, the actual number of spaces in colleges hasn't really increased. Harvard admits something like 10% more now than they did in the 70s. So there are more people competing for fewer spots. And that means that the colleges can just raise the price and they'll find somebody to pay it. No matter how high it gets, somebody is out there paying it. And so they just raise it and raise it and raise it and we keep paying it. So colleges are adding services like you know, rock climbing gyms, extra administration, they're doing more marketing, they're doing these really expensive study abroad programs. And again, they're competing over the rich kids. They're competing over the 10% and the 1% to keep the people who are not cost sensitive. So colleges keep throwing services and throwing bells and whistles at them, and they're just paying it 
because the entire economy is shifting toward marketing itself to the top 10% and the top 1%. And those are the kids that are going to college now. The college premium, how much extra you earn for going to college, is 70%. You earn almost double if you go to college on average than if you don't go to college. So we're in this bind where you have to go to college or else you end up in a really bad job for the rest of your life. But then to go to college, you have to go into 80,000, 100,000, more than that debt. I interviewed somebody for the article that is paying off $311,000 in debt. I interviewed another person who was actually a bankruptcy lawyer who was paying $2,000 a month in student loans after he got out of college. And so when you look at how many of us have student loans and that we're paying them off at the time when we're early in our careers, we're not as established in our fields, we can't afford decent housing, we aren't earning very much at that time, and then we're also on top of that paying a couple hundred bucks a month extra, that's money we're not saving, that's money we're not putting to a pension, that's money we're not putting to a home, and that extends the period of what our parents call adolescence, but really insecurity, that extends our period of insecurity into our 30s and our 40s. And so if you look at any poll of millennials, more than half say they have put off marriage, they have put off children, they have put off buying a home because of their student loans. And student loans are the only form of debt that you cannot get rid of in bankruptcy. So they are literally inescapable. Even if you die in some states, your partner might actually have to pay them off for you. So this is a ball and chain around the ankle of millions of millennials. And again, it's not a choice that we made. It's the economy that we're in, that to get onto the job ladder, you need to have an education. Yeah, I think it was what's important. There should be a distinction between the public universities and the private universities. Okay. I think it's important for every state to create a really great public universities. That should be basically, ideally speaking, should be free to the uh, citizens. That's why we pay taxes. Yes. And there are great schools like uh, UC Berkeley, UCLA, and the uh, University of Michigan, University of Virginia. These are great, as good as any private uh, universities. So basically, these uh, more schools like those should be created and made available to general uh, citizens. I think that's very yeah. essential. And yeah, then yeah, if sure. you are rich, you want to go to another kind, then you pay for it. So you can't, we can't force you know, the Ivy League and others to, to reduce Close their, yes, yeah, yeah. we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. But what we can do is really to create a, a, a really great public schools. I don't know the history of the like University of California system. Mm. Like I don't know when those schools opened. When I was a graduate student, because we, we, we look for, for information about other schools, California always no tuition, tuition free. Always, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was 30 years ago. Uh. It should be like that. I mean, when I look at the America I live mm -hmm. in now, it mm -hmm. feels like that is the legacy of a different, more idealistic, maybe pre-Cold War moment or something before America decided that every public good is somehow socialism. Uh, you know, like, like we would need a cultural shift or something for America to start opening new good public universities. I think the United States is a more socialist uh, state country than, than China. Then it, and then it wants to admit, for yes. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and you see like, like uh, uh, social security, like uh, the taxes, even though you don't have kids, but you still have to pay more taxes because if you 
own a bigger home. Right. Right. That nobody complain about that. <laughs> right, That's right. part of the culture and the uh, tradition. So that is a socialist tradition. It's good. Yes. <laughs> and I think there are something I think that should be available for every citizen, like uh, uh, health care. You know, that was already human rights uh, item. I think the clause 25 says clearly everybody is entitled yeah. to health care. It's like food. Right. So there is no reason for, you know, we privatize everything. So there's a lot for the United States to learn from some European countries, northern, uh, north and west European countries. And as mm. you say, we have mm. these things embedded and they're part of the culture because of history, because of, you know, FDR yes. or, you know, these programs that have been with us a long time. So, we, sure. so nobody, even the enemies of socialism sure. don't think of it as socialism. But, but in the beginning, any, he was condemned for that. Right, 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 right. But now it's part of our heritage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, maybe maybe we need to have some new fights. And, sure, like, yes. you know, it's just... Because any new thing that comes, yes. anytime you say, let's give something to the people, sure, look, yeah. it works in yes. in Sweden, yes. you're going to get... Yeah. You're going to get the complaints that it's, oh, yes. you're giving things away, everyone will be lazy... I don't think so. I really <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. So I think, generally speaking, my impression is that Americans work very hard. Yeah. That also means the system basically is fair. That means you, you, the more you work harder, work you get a better reward. But there are people who that's not their life. They want this different kind of fulfillment. So society should be open that they they prefer to be, materially speaking, poor in order to get something else. That's fine too. You want to be a student for forty years. With, 30, or 30 years, that's fine too. I completely <laughs> agree. I think, I think it, creates, um, it creates a more diverse society. It yes. brings us benefits. It, it makes the culture something that it would not be otherwise. You know? uh, you if, you, if you it. give people the freedom yes. you know, to live lives in different yes. ways. Yes, and uh, you don't know in the long run, maybe those idlers can produce more. <laughs> for the society. The idlers, yeah. 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 So I, I think that that should be, you know, shouldn't be, you know, you have a good job and security. You know, some people don't like that even. That's actually really interesting and very wise and not something that I hear very often. No, unfortunately. See, yeah, for, for instance, our neighbor can, in Canada, a lot of people I noticed, I, they, they prefer a small part-time job right. so they can have time to do something they really love. Because of the basic, the, the social infrastructure, the, the infrastructure provides them with the benefits and everything they could afford. But in the long run, you don't know. Maybe that's the love, that passion that can produce something extraordinary. Time is very precious. Very precious. Very yes, precious. Yes. And when I have time that's my own, I am a better person. Yes. I, I'm just better to other people, sure. yes. you know, because I do the things that make myself a good person. I exercise, meditate, sure, you know, yes. talk to friends. Like, yes, it's making your life different. Yes. You, know, you know, basically, that's another kind of happiness. That's, yeah. It's not you know, related to, to material. Basically, it's a sense of luxury, but real luxury. You have more time for yourself. That's right. I do love some kind of socialist aspects of American society. Mm. I think those are really make America different. This is not, I don't think it's, a, you know, socialism. We had, church is a big part of it. Charity. Yeah, charity. And so there should be some kind of justice and equity in society. I do believe in that. What is your perspective on kind of 
English education now, like in the universities? Do you feel like, do you, you know, are fewer students coming to those departments or yes. is it the same? Or That's a big problem. Uh, two things. I think one is, you know, in the 80s, the, there's a, 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 there was a new trend it's called theories. There were so many theories that really alienated a lot of young people, young students. Coming out of European postmodernism, yeah, Foucault, post -modernism, Foucault yeah, and Lacan Foucault, and all Lacan, that stuff. Derrida, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they really, uh, we tend to uh, really uh, uh, distance ourselves from the, the books, the real uh, uh, good literature. And so we lost a lot of students. But the other part is the technology, you know, the, mm. uh, and so many people, they have more people want really to focus on profession to get a, a better job, a concrete job. And it's again that sort of yeah. pragmatic need yes. to survive in a society sure. that doesn't offer many yes. different paths. And the humanities really suffer. And you know, very often I can see some of my colleagues, really distinguished scholars, they would have five or six people for one class. Mm. It was not like this two decades ago. So enrollment in English departments have become a huge problem everywhere. You make a very good point about theory because, mm. you know, I, so my graduate school where I first read mm. East Eastern books was mm -hmm. uh, St. John's College mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Santa Fe, New sure, Mexico. Yeah. And their program is a great books program like the University ah, of Chicago. Yeah, so sure. you sit down, the professor is not an expert, yeah. you read the book yeah, and, you, and you talk. Sure. And you may lose some things yeah. in terms of background and yeah. secondary sources, but there is something very beautiful yeah, about that. Yeah, foundational text, right? You want to see, read the classics to give you a sense of the order, you know, the word, what the word was like. Yeah, yeah. and to really like immerse yourself in the ideas yes. without anything standing sure. in between. Yeah. I mean, I was reading Eastern things in translation, mm -hmm. so there is something standing mm -hmm. in between, yeah. but, but I always felt that for me, anyway, that was what I valued about education and learning is yes. just that direct contact. Sure, it uh, used to be, you know, this is called some school called a core, <laughs> core course, and basically, you know, that I think those are very, very valuable and taught by faculty members from different different dis disciplines. Theory makes the core problematic because of the political uh, mm, fragmentation yeah. that happens yes. as a result of theory. You can't decide what should be the core. There shouldn't be a core because it's no. elitist. Sure, yeah, okay, <laughs> sure. But yeah. the problem is theory is very often we tend to play with ideas. Mm. You know, and uh, everything is based upon ideas. Ideas are based upon ideas. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that really tend to alienate young minds. It alienates me. I mean, when I when I thought about going to graduate school for literature years ago, it got and, I <laughs> and I understood what it yeah. would be, I said, yeah. no, thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Well, on that somewhat sad note, let's let's go to the second <laughs> clip. Okay. Shall we? Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so this is Ben Gertzel, the second clip. He's an uh, artificial intelligence expert, mm. but he is also a panpsychist who believes that all things are conscious. So we're going to hear about panpsychism. Consciousness is one of these great vexing and confusing uh, words and, and concepts which, you know, intelligent people take different positions on it and, and could argue about forever. 
my own perspective on consciousness is rooted in what you could call a sort of panpsychism, by which I mean the idea that consciousness is, in essence, a property imminent in existence, much as space and time are. I mean, everything that we see around us somehow is situated in time and in, in, in space, in our space-time continuum. Panpsychism is the idea that everything around us and within us has some you know, element of consciousness to it also, so that it's not really meaningful to think of, you know, here's this non-conscious matter, and then there's this thing called consciousness, which is attached to some matter and, and not to others. Now, panpsychism, to me, is not even that interesting. It's almost obvious. It's just the foundation and the beginning for thinking about consciousness, because then you have interesting questions like, you know, why is the consciousness associated with my brain so much more, you know, self-reflective and, you know, dynamic and in some senses intense than, say, the consciousness associated with my hat, right? I mean, that the hat, it's a cool hat. It may be, it may be more conscious than the average hat, but I, I mean, in, in, in the end, the brain has these complex feedback loops. The brain can model itself. The brain responds very differently to slightly different stimuli coming in, and many properties of the brain seem associated with the, you know, the more powerful and dynamic states of consciousness that it has relative to other things. So if you accept panpsychism, that everything is imbued somehow with an element of consciousness, you know, some things can still be more conscious than others, and some things are differently conscious than others. And then that, that's where things get interesting, right? When you talk about AI, so I, I would imagine if I were able to, you know, tap a wire into my brain or Wi-Fi connection into my brain and wire my brain into your brain, then as I increase the bandwidth of that wire between my brain and your brain, I would feel your mind there, like on the fringe of my mind, like mo almost as if we were fusing into one shared mind or something. And that, that would be a bit freakish, could be, could be a lot of fun. But on the other hand, if I took my mind and wired it into my hat, like I might, I might feel what it is to be a hat, but I would, I would imagine whatever consciousness I feel on the other end of the wire, it's not going to be quite the same as melding my mind with the mind of another human, right? It, it, it's going to be melding my mind with something that doesn't change very much or have much variety to its, uh, to its state. On the other hand, what if we think of, you know, Sophia version 10.0 with her mind enhanced by the, by the SingularityNet blockchain-based AGI mind cloud, right? What if I wire my brain into that? Does it feel like wiring my brain into a human brain? Does it feel like wiring my brain into a hat or a brick or, or an earthworm, right? So these will be very interesting experiments to do. I like the idea, you know, that you know, there is life in everything. I think, it, I think that at least that makes people more, the, the mind more conscious of things, more subtle. Uh, there's that can create a reverence for life. That's very important. We have a broad idea mm -hmm. of cultural difference between the West and the Far East. Yes, and I will sure. say that like when I 
look at, for example, the films of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Do you mm. know that uh, cartoon director, mm. my, my Neighbor Totoro, sure. and those movies? Mm. I see that the landscape, just like in the poems of yeah. Libai, I yeah. see that the landscape, the trees, the earth, yes. the nature are so much bigger yeah. than the people. And I feel like in the West, we really, you know, from Descartes maybe on, we sort mm -hmm. of cut ourselves off from nature in a very, from everything sure, else yeah, in a different yeah. way. Yeah, it's different, yes. In fact, in, in the art, in, in traditional Asian landscape art, the human figure is very small, <laughs> right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Bus, the human figure is just like dots. Sure, yes, that was, there is a sense of, you know, something bigger than yourself. Maybe because China, you know, the revolution and Marxist ideology, all those have been somewhat destroyed, changed, changed destroyed. That's, I think that's why this, I feel this show is more precious. Just to remind people of something bigger. Mm. Uh, everything has life. And, uh, you know, it, there's a mystery around you. You have to be, you can't be careless. I think it's very important. You can't be careless about the things, about the others. That's right. That every, every action that you take yes. has <laughs> unintended consequences. Sure, yes, yes. In terms of this idea of panpsychism, it's a sticking point for me to imagine that everything is conscious, like the mm. microphone that I'm talking into as conscious. But I can say that we are finding really interesting things or we're hearing interesting things from the plant biologists, for mm. example, yes, sure. about how the trees are like sure. communicating with each other. Plants, yes, yes. We are learning that consciousness is bigger than what we Sure, thought. I think that is already proved, right? They, they, they have a kind of a, their own psyche, right? Yeah, they're like <laughs> networked together yes, uh, through the sure. mycelium, yes, through the mushroom yes. fibers yes. and telling each other when to increase a certain amount of chemical sure. to prevent something from yeah. eating the bark and yeah. you know this, in fact in everyday life very often we don't articulate this but we do have that kind of awareness the psyche everywhere when we got into a car very often we patted the car <laughs> we <laughs> right. animal right don't make trouble this time right that's true we, are, we, we just did this do this kind of thing we have a certain yeah <laughs> sentimentality yes. about physical yes. or or a relationship i guess uh, yeah with i think that was not just the, uh, there is an empirical basis if you, that's why we say knock the wood right right something you know bigger than you or more mysterious you have to be very, uh, be very careful about that. I can totally understand it in terms of complexity. And yeah. I can say that all things, including myself, are mm. made of atoms. All of the mm. things, including this table, yeah. are infused with energy. And yeah. so in a sense, we are all the same stuff. Sure. You yes. know? Yeah, I, I think it's really it's good. It's whether we agree with it or not, but I think this really make uh, expand our mind, our, our awareness. I think that was precious. I think that is precious. What is one of the important things that we haven't talked about that a modern reader coming to this ancient life should think about or should notice. I learned so much from him. I spent more than two years working on his, you know, his poems, <laughs> his material. One thing I learned really, he had a sense, he has a famous line, he said, you know, um, when I mingle, when I mix with the princes and dukes, I'm their equal. You know, he was from a very shabby <laughs> origin, a background, but there was a sense because of his, of his talent, 
his artistic achievement, his equal. In fact, he's superior. Nowadays, who remember those <laughs> princes and dukes, right, 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 right. And he shaped the culture and people's, uh, you know, uh, the language. So I had a sense really what is really valuable as an artist. But in his case, uh, really, uh, there is a sense you know, people, people uh, really know, some intuitive know what he did is really was more important than the actual person. <laughs> also, I think in a way, also I, I really, the, the whole process became kind of self-reflective. That means in our time we can, if you you have you're healthy, have some education, basically, materially speaking, can live comfortably. You don't have to suffer that kind of want, right? Right. And in his case, it was really with so much talent, so much energy, he didn't get anywhere. We can't say he was fulfilled. We can't say that. No, he's traveling, he's wandering, <laughs> mm-hmm. he's fighting, like yeah, from the beginning to <laughs> yeah. the end of his life, so, yeah. fighting. Yes. Fighting yeah. with himself, fighting with I the know. world. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity to talk with you, and uh, and thank you for a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you, and Jason. It was a pleasure. It is a pleasure. Yeah, it is a pleasure. And thank you for your wonderful book, The Banished Immortal, A Life of Levi. It, it really is written with, with a kind of clarity that took me deep into this ancient life in a way that felt very immediate and present. Oh, thank you. That, that's high praise. <laughs> that's high praise. <laughs> that was my ambition, in fact, really to make this really uncommunicable. This morning, I was thinking about thinking. This show is part of Big Think. It's called Think Again. And for lots of people, the associations that come up are a kind of clinical rationality divorced from all those scientifically unverifiable things like love. Brainy people being impressively brainy. Some kind of contest of cleverness. For me, love is the impulse driving this work opening to new connections with people and ideas. And intellectual inquiry, as I see it, is also an act of love. Without love, or call it friendly curiosity, if you like that better, at their heart, I don't think these kinds of conversations are worth having. Feel free to email me at jason at bigthink.com with any thoughts on this or anything else. I'll be back next week, and I hope you can join me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.